the way I often frame it for people is, you know, I can be in Waterstones in the town centre one minute and then 50 minutes later I can be watching a man fly a hawk. Hello, my name's Emma Anderson and this is Unfinishing, the podcast about projects that never got finished or never made it out into the world. I'm still recruiting guests for this series, so if you have an unfinished or private project that you'd like to talk about, email me on unfinishing.pod at gmail.com. My guest in this episode is Mark Anthony Owen. As well as being a poet himself, he's a publisher of other people's poetry. He's created the poetry journals I Am and After, and there's some links in the show notes to those. The unfinished, or as he puts it, the unfolding project that he's here to talk about today, is called Subraria. It's a collection of poems about the place where the suburbs and the rural landscape meet. Mark updates Subraria with new poems every three years, and in doing so he's gradually creating patterns that he is pretty secretive about. I'll let him tell you the rest. So, could you start off by telling me about Subraria? What, how would you describe the project? I guess I would describe it as a poetry collection that's, by the time it's finished, will span something like 27 years or something along that line wow. because of the way that I chose to break it up. It came about because I knew that I wanted to write about the world in which I've always lived, in which I grew up, kind of my frame of, of normal, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And I've always lived in these spaces which are what you would typically think of as suburban, but at the same time, you know, they're, they're kind of adjoining or bleeding into rural countryside. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think I was the first person to coin the phrase suburbia or suburural. I think it was in a an American somewhere on a a website, but I'd had the idea even before I'd ever seen that word online. So I was thinking, okay, so I'm going to write these poems. I know this is going to be pretty much my sole subject. Therefore, it felt somewhat dishonest to decide, okay, so I'm going to publish one collection with this title and another collection with this title, being very vain at the very beginning. Mm. Imagine I'd even get published. Um, (laughs) And I then decided, well, why not just put them all into the same collection, but split the releases of the collection up over a period of time? Yeah. Such that you could, ultimately, you could treat it like a loose leaf collection, although they would be structured to each release. You could Mm. just go in there and dip in and out as much as you wanted to over the course of of the whole publishing run. And I said another interview, I was chatting with a couple of poets online about this, and they mentioned uh, Walt Whitman and the Leaves of Grass mm-hmm. and how his collection kind of expanded and at one point I think contracted as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially he wrote the same book all the way through. So I kind of thought, well, yeah, I, maybe I could do something like that, not writing the same poems, building on it mm-hmm. each time, but splitting it up with a kind of a regular publishing cadence. And it felt like a more honest way to present the body mm. of the work that I was trying to produce. And why did you choose the sub-rural space? What's, what's special about it? There's a part of me that would love to pretend that I would like to live out in the sticks, completely cut mm. off from all the mod cons, blah, blah, blah. I lived in a village for six years and even that was too much. So <laughs> I know that I can't do that. But what I... What I've always liked because I've always lived with it is living in kind of small spaces, either sort of smaller parts of a larger town or smaller towns, market towns and so on, where you've been 
we've always had ready access to the countryside. The way I often frame it for people is, you know, I can be in Waterstones in the town centre one minute and then 50 minutes later, I can be watching a man fly a hawk up on a hillside, <laughs> you know. And, and I love the fact that these two worlds coexist in, in quite a compact space. Mm. And as I said, they are my kind of frame of normal. They're everything I've, I've, I've ever known. And I suppose I took to heart the very first writing injunction that I ever heard, which was write about what you know. And I've mm. literally done that. And I find it very intriguing, that sense of compactness or smallness that you were talking about there, because I think sometimes when people think about nature poetry, for example, you think mm. of often, well, you know, often the romantic poets, right? And like the Lake District and the glorious large mountains and the epicness and all of that. So I think it's a very original choice to focus on something that maybe goes a little bit more unnoticed I'm not sure there's a question there <laughs> yeah no I, I I take your point exactly I mean there are a lot of suburban poets there are poets who will write about as you say the the, the wild romantic spaces the mountains hillsides eastlands whatever it might be mm. but quite often these kinds of spaces where I've lived and where a lot of ordinary people live aren't like that they're just mm. farmland that happens to have you know where the farmer sold off x amount of hectares or whatever to to a housing company who've built you know a housing estate and and that's just happened and then suddenly you've got these two communities living side by side and kind of bleeding one into the other yeah and that point about so the poems are really really about from what I've seen I've not read through all of them in depth but I've dipped in and out as you were describing and a lot of them are very much about the people and the communities as well as the space yeah definitely there are kind of themes I suppose probably better known to me than others at this point because mm. I'm still quite relatively near the beginning of the project but yeah there are there are themes where I write about my family friends loved ones what, what have you there are what I call the kind of observational poems where I'm I see a couple in a bookshop and I'm wondering what are they thinking what's their story mm. and I build something out of a small detail there are the nature poems of course because I you know I do love going for walks in the countryside and lots of things catch my eye and fire the imagination as I'm doing it so yeah, I guess I liked the idea of having all these things here, but what I wanted to do is reflect the way I live in these spaces, which is mainly two thirds of it is spent within the town, the suburb, and a third of it within the kind of rural space. And that's why the split within Sabrera is weighted more towards the human-centered stuff, the kind of the, mm. you know, the built landscape, and then there's a small section kind of peppered throughout, which perhaps p- provides a little palate cleanser, perhaps, from some of the yeah. darker poems that come along, yeah. um, where I'm just focusing on, you know, a, a kestrel, a butterfly, whatever it might be. I think that's a really useful explanation, actually, because I was going to ask you about why the separation between the two, and I think that the way you've described it there of, of mostly... There's the human-focused ones, and then occasionally you get these really beautiful snapshots, I guess. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, it was definitely a conscious decision. One thing I knew I couldn't do was try to encapsulate everything Mm. in the same poem. And I figured there are people out there who can do this, and they can do it really well. But I am a miniaturist, and I couldn't (laughs) possibly hope to fit all of that in my very short, tight, economic poems. It just wouldn't work. And speaking of the form of them, actually, so I think I might be saying that they are syllabic poems. They are indeed, yeah, and they're all self-created syllabic forms. I don't use anybody else's. There's there's no historical context to any of it. They were arrived at really quite arbitrarily. I simply took a 
stack of poems that I'd been writing at the time, ones that I liked and thought had had some some kind of legs to them. Yeah. And I patterned them basically. And the mm-hmm. first nine that I patterned gave me nine forms. I like the number nine; it's a bit of a favourite. So I thought that'll do. <laughs> I'll stop there, and it's it's no more exciting than that. So could you explain, maybe for people who aren't regular readers or writers of poetry, what that syllabic form means? What does it consist of? Yeah, sure. In most English language poems, we tend to have what's called accentual syllabic. So Mm -hmm. as well as counting the number of syllables in a line and forming a pattern of those throughout a poem, you're also counting the stresses or the beats which is you know, where we get iam- iambic pentameter from and, and so on and so forth, the way that, uh, that Shakespeare wrote. But I'll be honest with you, it's, it was partly a cop-out on my part. I wasn't confident <laughs> enough to, to count both the syllables and, yeah. and the, the beats. It was a bit like you know, tapping your head while rubbing your tummy. But also I figured that some English speakers pronounce words differently. Therefore, they all place the stress in different places And although ours is not an accentually timed language like Italian or French or Japanese, I figured that in most cases you can break most words down into their syllabic component parts. Mm -hmm. And so it was easier for me just to have a structure by just picking out this line will have that many syllables, this line will have that many syllables, sticking to that pattern almost always. I occasionally Mm -hmm. vary if I feel I need to, but not by very much. And that gave me the, the scaffolding for the poem, as it were. And I think they read very naturally. You don't feel as though, I guess maybe as you might feel if it was accentual syllabic, that there's necessarily like a really obvious rhythm. They read they read much more naturally than that. I'm really pleased you said that because that has <laughs> always been my aim. I have this conversation on Twitter quite a lot where mm. I say to people, punctuation is the tempo markings of poetry. It's how you how you time it, it's how you get the, the cadences. You get the pauses, the inflections, the punctuation for me, at least, is absolutely key. And I say to people, don't read my line breaks, read over them, if anything. Just know that they're there to show you it's the shape of a poem. That's all they're there to do in most cases. Mm -hmm. But read from punctuation to punctuation. Read it naturally. Read it as though it is free verse. And then although the structure is there, you'll have a very natural sounding poem, as you've spotted. You mentioned there about the line break sort of having an effect on the presentation on the page. And I think it's worth, even though this is a podcast, um, (laughs) worth commenting on their digital presentation. There's some really lovely graphics and also sound on the Subrario website. And I wondered if you could maybe describe what those elements add, why you chose to go digital, or maybe what the relationship to the poems is. Yeah, don't get me wrong, I'm not against print per se. I am, Mm. I consider myself very digitally native, given that I've done most of my work in the last 20 years with a computer or a mobile phone or whatever. But I suppose there is a, there is a small environmental concern behind it. We produce Mm. tens of thousands, millions of books every year, and quite a lot of them just end up in charity shops or getting pulped again and all the energy involved in making those things. There's also the fact that, as I again said on Twitter, I think over the weekend, about, you know, publishers seem to be artificially limiting access to writing by Mm. insisting on only publishing it physically when it could be published digitally and then anybody could access it whenever they wanted. And I suppose that digital nature and also partly the ephemeral nature of of the Internet as well, the fact that things Mm. can be there one day and not be there the next, all of that appealed to me. And it also allowed me to have 
complete creative control over every element of the thing that I was building and shaping. If I made a mistake with a spelling or I wanted to change a word, I could dive in and do that easily. There was no reprint costs. There was none of that to hold me up. But at the same time, there was this idea of the coffee table book, that beautiful object that you have in your home and you just love looking at it. And that's why I tried to set, certainly for the desktop version, I tried to set the poems up to look like a double page spread in a book Mm. so that all you would really focus on, or you'd be aware of the other elements, what you'd really focus on were the words. And if you wanted to hear me read them, well, there's an option for that as well. Yeah, I really got that kind of coffee table book vibe. Just going on to like the the main homepage where you go on and there's some text appears and then you get the sound of the rooks that yeah. you've recorded. Yeah, I, I it slightly annoys me that most browsers don't automatically play the music. Yeah. <laughs> which, which really bugged me because I thought, I've gone to all this effort to set this up and most people will never actually realise that there are actually rooks cawing at the beginning of it and it's yeah. designed to create an atmosphere and kind of welcome you in. It's probably a bit old hat in the way that people use the internet now, but mm. at the same time, I'm trying to meld two worlds again. You know, I'm trying to bring the yeah. print and the digital together, much as I am with the, you know, with the suburban and the rural. And you mentioned just there about being able to dip into the poems and maybe change a word or correct something because mm-hmm. the digital format is really editable. And I guess that ties into something that I wanted to ask you about your writing process, which comes up a lot on this podcast because it's about unfinished things. Of course. Which is the the three-year gaps between releases. How does that work? Do you find that you sort of write steadily throughout the three years? Is it a last minute rush? Are you constantly going back in and doing those little tinkering bits? Right. Let me tell you how I work. This is interesting. (laughs) This might actually surprise some people because there is the assumption that writers write from book to book and, you know, a few old scraps that they keep around to one side that they might reintegrate later on. They're generally writing fresh material all the way through. Mm. That hasn't worked out in my life the way I thought it would work out. I was actually quite free with time and and, and creativity between late 30s, early 40s before Mm. um, I had five children in my life. Um, (laughs) And so I wrote an awful lot of poetry back then. Not Mm. all of it, I would say, salvageable, but there's quite a lot of stuff that still needs the rough edges knocking off of it and is in my head at least slated to appear later on in uh, in Siberia. So I would say probably between releases one and six, I know broadly what all of them sound like, how they look. There are some spaces for some changes, some spaces for some new poems to go in. It's only really the last three at this point, seven, eight and nine, that I don't really know what's going to go in there. So Mm -hmm. I I am working at a bit of an advantage. And I work this way because whereas when I first came back to poetry in my late 30s, I was writing without editing. I scribbled things down. I was very satisfied almost immediately with the thing that I'd written until I discovered writing syllabically. And then it forced me to get back into the craft. And because of that, these poems that I have in in, in the bank, as it were, whenever I come back to them, I'm always tinkering. I'm always thinking, is that the best word? Is that the best way to break it? And because of that, my poems take an age to happen. Even short seven line poems can take six, seven, eight, nine years to write. Mm. So then when you do get them, I guess, in inverted commas, finished yeah, and released into the digital uh, coffee table book, which is Sabrovia, 
what does release day feel like? I suppose I am reminded every time that I I do release that I'm Mm self-publishing. There is not a corporate machine behind me to promote this. I rely on the goodwill of followers on social media, other poets that you know, who, who like my work and have expressed uh, an interest in hoping to kind of promote it along the way. But I know that ultimately, because I'm still, again, quite near the beginning of the process of this, I'm not expecting any great buzz of excitement around it. It's mm-hmm. going to take, I think, some time. It'll take some time before people start to see the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Because as I say, I'm a miniaturist. I write quite small poems. And Yes, you can zero in on those and you can see them for what they are. But I hope someday you'll be able to step back from the whole thing, look Mm. at it all at a glance and go, oh, that's what he's trying to do. (laughs) So at the moment, I I want to be more excited when I publish, but I actually actually become too self-effacing and I end up not promoting it anywhere near enough and spending all my time promoting other poets for my other projects. (laughs) But that's intriguing that there is a sort of wider jigsaw puzzle that you, I, th- I think you probably don't want to share right now, but um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that you have in your own head. Exactly. And there are there are themes going on in there that will make sense as time goes on. There are poems that you'll sort of notice and realise there's a connection between them. They're kind of companion poems. Mm. There's a thing, and I've never mentioned this to anybody before, but there is a thing called the Scarecrow Sequence. Okay. one poem in each release over nine releases which eventually will build into something you won't okay. necessarily spot it but it will come together in the end yeah all these kind of things cycling around and me approaching subjects from different angles but ultimately the same subjects because mm. that's what interests me as a poet I suppose that's such a teaser <laughs> <laughs> I know I've, I've got I've got to have some mystique haven't you? you know what I mean yeah yeah absolutely I like it <laughs> <laughs> And I've noticed that, so you've had a release in April 2018 and April 2021. Uh, obviously, there's a pandemic in the middle of that. Um, yeah. h- how did that, if at all, uh, affect affect the writing? It meant the kids were at home a bit more. And it meant that I found it harder to find the time to put the polish, particularly mm. onto the second release, because obviously I was doing a lot more parenting and a lot more things you're trying to juggle too many things in too small a space, really, as, mm. as many people were. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a lovely problem to have. But at the same time, yes, it made it it made it a little more a little more stressful, but not a lot, I would yeah. say. And you and you got the release out on time, which is impressive, I would say. Yeah, and you have no idea how close I sail to the wind <laughs> with that either. Um I try to portray the the, the archetypal swan on the surface of the water but believe me the feet under the water are going crazy (laughs) so speaking of some themes in Mm. the in the poems when I was kind of scanning through them I think I detected a bit of a theme which is that I think in a lot of the poems is a convergence between the the everyday and the extraordinary or the mysterious Mm -hmm. And one of them, and I I just kind of wanted to ask you about this one poem in particular, which is Harvest Mm -hmm. Time. Yeah. Which describes some metal detectorists in kind of, well, in in religious language. But I also wondered, have you seen the television programme Detectorists? I have, and I absolutely love it. (laughs) Right. I'm totally obsessed with it. And your poem reminded me of it so much. (laughs) That is 
fabulous because that's precisely <laughs> what I wanted. I wanted the religious thing to be very strongly overlaid, but at the same time, I wanted to capture what I was actually seeing genuinely in that moment, which was some detectors from a local club yeah. scanning through a field. Yeah. yeah. And I think you probably noticed as well, I, I have quite a lot of pseudo-religious themes yes. going through there. Yeah. Not because I am particularly of any denomination. Um, I, I'm very interested in metaphysics and have been for a long time. Um, I certainly think there's more to the world than we see you mm. know, in the physical. And yeah, sometimes I just like to blend that into the work. Yeah. And I guess also ties into the broader subreria theme of bringing very different things together. Yeah, I suppose it does. I quite often, somewhat, I, I fear pretentiously, um, pick on Latin words for titles of mm. things because I don't necessarily want to just say the thing out loud. Yeah. I, I want you to have to work at it a little bit and try to understand what it is that I'm doing. And if it means you've got to go away and Google it, or let's face it, <laughs> highlight it and click search search <laughs> Google, then great. Um, because, yeah. you know, it's, it's a journey for all of us, right? Yeah. And that comment actually segues us quite nicely to some questions I wanted to ask you about your wider poetry career and your wider thoughts on poetry. I heard you say in a different interview that one of the things that every poet wants to do or tries to do is find a non-typical way of expressing things, which I guess reminded me of what you were saying there about using the Latin titles. And I wondered, is that for you the main point of poetry? Do you theorise it in your own practice or do you just do it without kind of thinking about the wider the wider point of, of writing? It's a good question. When I started out, and I'm talking way back now, mm. I did what a lot of young men do. I wrote poems because I was in love. Okay, good reason. Um, and yeah, it, it is a great reason. <laughs> but the poems that came out of that were quite cliched yeah quite tumty 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 tar and I, I can't in any way say there were any original images in there at all mm. but it at least showed me that I had an ability to rhyme mm. uh, and to and to scan poems which was you know which is good but yeah I think the question about is it about finding an original way to say something absolutely it is mm. yeah it really is. Now, now, because of I Am and After, my other project that I run online, I see a lot of poems that get submitted. And I do have to be ruthless about the things that yeah. I accept and, and don't accept. And sometimes the things that get rejected are simply because the imagery is something expected rather than unexpected. Mm -hmm. But if you if you can hit me with an image and I see something familiar in a whole new way because of the way you've described it, you've got my interest straight away and I'll keep reading and there's every chance that you'll do it again and again and again in the poem. And I'll say, welcome on board. I'll, I'll publish this. Yeah. You know? And when you're trying to do that in your own writing, is that a really hard work process or is it something that comes to the images come relatively naturally? It's a bit of both. Yeah. Some days I can be just staring out the window in the kitchen and I'll see something and a phrase, a line, a word, an yeah. image will suggest itself and I'll move it around in my head as it were a little bit and then I'll quickly jot it into my phone, which is where I tend to store everything that comes along like mm -hmm. that. And if it feels right, there's a chance that if I keep looking, keep thinking, another line will come. And I can sometimes very quickly have what I hope is a poem of, of original imagery quite quickly. Other times, I probably stared at the same line, I don't know how many times, and I 
cannot think yeah. of the right way, not just a better way, but a right way to f- express the thing that I saw or felt or thought. And that's, again, why my poems sometimes take an awfully long time to yeah. finish because I just don't get it. I just don't feel inspired. It doesn't come. Sure, sure. And you mentioned uh, when you were talking about when you started to write poetry that you wrote like lots of young men love poetry, um, which mm-hmm. which now you wouldn't necessarily class as, as good. And I'm guessing that's not public and not published. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I knew you were going to come to that. <laughs> um, yeah, there is there is a lot of stuff that has survived, let's say, because I, I have culled quite a lot of stuff. I'm not just, not so much the old stuff, actually, the juvenilia, but mm-hmm. the more of the more recent stuff I must have deleted at least permanently deleted at least a hundred odd poems Oh wow! because I just didn't believe in them I have another folder called unusable because I look <laughs> at them and I think yeah I might be able to scavenge something from that but generally they're awful I've got another folder called recyclable which I definitely know I can take something from and build it into another poem yeah and and this will please you. I've got a poem called Unfinished. Oh, fantastic. Um, <laughs> which, uh, sorry, a poem, a folder called Unfinished. And yeah. that folder contains poems, which, which I'm pretty confident will turn into something at some point. Yeah. But I just haven't found the right image, the right word, the right form, the right way of expressing it yet. I mean, those are whole new strata of unfinished things <laughs> that uh, I've not thought about before. But I think you're very brave to have deleted things permanently. I'd, I haven't spoken to anyone else who's said, I've just chucked stuff out. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit of a fire cures all kind of person. Yeah. If I reach a point where it's feeling like a weight around my neck and becoming a mental distraction, mm. I'll just go, right, I'll burn it. I trust that I'm a good enough writer that I can do all this again someday and do it better, hopefully. And therefore, what am I really losing? And to be honest, does the world really need what I'm writing? (laughs) I'm not vain enough to believe that, you know, that that's that's ever going to be a a legacy for me. So I just think, well, you know, if it's not working, it's not working. Get rid of it. So you said that you've got unusable, recyclable and unfinished. Are any of those abandoned the bigger pieces that are abandoned are the various attempts I made at starting novels. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the first one, I'll give you the title. I'll give you the original title before yeah. I before I fell in love with Tori Amos and changed it to the name of one of our albums. Um, mm-hmm. The original title was Fishing for Magpies. Nice. But it was actually quite a dark story. Semi-autobiographical, because let's face it, most first books are Mm -hmm. but I changed it later on to Little Earthquakes which was Tori's first um, solo album and I did that because the idea of the book was that there would be kind of a transformation and a revelation of the central character at the end where the things that felt huge in the beginning turned out to be not so huge by the end so hence Little Earthquakes. I started to write a novel the details of which I will not share but the title (laughs) I will which was The Soul Gymnasium. Okay. That never went anywhere. It comes from the expression that the uh, the earth is the gymnasium of the soul. It's where we come to work it out. Nice. So I kind of took it from that, which I quite liked. Yeah. And then there's another unfinished piece knocking about that I desperately want to write, but I just don't think I ever will, although I started it, which is called What Happens When You Die? A Guide for Children, 
the idea being that I would take this kind of metaphysical learning that I've done over the years, book reading, thinking, whatever you, and I'd build it into a story where a child gets to go into the post-mortem state and understand that death isn't real, that death is just another step on the journey. And Mm. she's able to get some comfort from that. But yeah, those are the kinds of things that I've got sitting around somewhere on a hard drive near me where I am right now that I will probably never finish. (laughs) And so your chosen form then is more poetry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I re-listened to your um to your episode with uh Rishi, yeah. Rishi Destadar recently. Yeah. And when he said that he discovered that copywriting and poetry share something in common and he realized that he perhaps wasn't a long form writer. Yeah. And I think something very similar happened to me. I fought it and fought it and fought it. I thought the novel was serious writing and that's the only way you'd ever get taken seriously as a writer until I realised that actually no poetry in some ways has an even greater mystique. It is the stakes are higher in some ways because Mm. you have less space to say something. And also I just don't really like working on a long piece, hence the three abandoned novels. Yeah, I think there's a lot in that. I think so the reason I really like poetry is that it is so condensed and that it's it is almost like a little puzzle that you can sit with for a very long time, even though it's often short, but pull so much out of. Well, I mean, the, the irony of this, f- from my perspective, is that the the thing that made me a writer, ultimately, the thing that set my feet on the road of writing mm. was actually a novel. Okay. It was Jeanette Winterson's Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. I loved the fact that it was told partly in fable and partly as a straight narrative. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you could... You could make some bits sound real that weren't, even though you were writing in a kind of fa- a fabulous way. Mm. And you could make other things seem fabulous, even though they were, in fact, the real things. Mm. And that is something that I've borrowed heavily in Sabruria and in my poetry. Some of the things I write, you will be convinced, I'm fairly certain, that those things actually happened and were real, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But they are often the ones where I've mixed in a good dose of fiction. Because I, I don't let the truth get in the way of a good poem. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> Whereas there are some poems I've written, you just you just think, that is nonsense. That never happened. And I'm going to name one example. The poem, Going to Kill My Father. <laughs> oh my goodness, I wanted to ask you about this poem for that reason. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That yeah. is pretty much the truth. Right, yeah. I genuinely did go out in a rage one night. I won't go into the details. But yeah, yeah I went out with the express intention of doing him some very serious harm. And like I said, people think I'm just making it up, but Mm. it it was real. And then there are other poems where I've changed maybe just the last line so that an experience that I remembered quite fondly, I've turned it deliberately dark at the end because it just made a better poem. And I'm not scared to do that. Yeah. It's so interesting that you picked that example. I literally have it up on my browser as as something that I was really interested in. Because (laughs) for that exact reason, because I was really trying to work out how much of that was based in reality because you have the line that so the the second stanza starts you mm. probably think I'm bullshitting you yeah. <laughs> so and it so the poem is itself obviously playing playing with that and similarly I think there's a poem of, of a similar form called friend of a friend which mm. I think is in release too where it's what it appears to be about male rape but in actual fact it was a, a friend of a friend genuinely a friend yeah. of a friend's yeah. first sexual encounter um yeah which he tried to hide because he didn't want his friends to think ill of yeah. him. Yeah. And I think, so with Going to Kill My Father as well, I, in the bluntness of it, I might be reading too much into this because so my research interest is in humour. 
so I tend to see it in places sometimes where it doesn't exist. But the bluntness of it <laughs> had, had to me a sort of dark humour. Yeah, I can I can understand that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, in my head when I was writing it, I was trying to vent what was quite a, a painful memory at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I can see on reflection, especially given the way that I've written it in an almost flippant way. Yeah. But you can kind of sense where I'm talking about, you know, using a an ashtray or whatever it was, and and the brutality of that imagery that comes in that part of the poem. Where, yeah, there was that that level of rage in me. Absolutely, there was. I very much enjoy promoting other poets' work. Mm. And, of course, I speak to a lot of other poets. And, yeah, I mean, they have a lot of unfinished stuff as well. And they they wring their hands and gnash their teeth yeah. and stay up late at night and can't figure out what to do with things. And, you know, and I quite like sometimes when people publicly workshop stuff on social media so that you can just kind of like throw us some ideas I did that with a poem um Designated Public Place, which is from Release 2 of Sabria. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of, I had two bits of a poem that didn't work and I jammed them together and then tried to make it work and over time I just kept putting versions of it up on Twitter and eventually enough likes started to roll <laughs> up that people went yeah this is the one this this feels nice this feels good don't change this and so yeah it's it's quite nice I don't necessarily feel I have to do that kind of workshopping process but it's it's a nice process when you do it. Do you think Twitter is quite suited to that kind of thing because of the concision of the word limit? It is. And also Twitter is absolutely a writer's medium. Yeah. There's no question of that. It's, you know, I mean, yes, we have videos on there now and images and so on and so forth, but it's still ultimately about the writing. Yeah. And it favours people who can write concisely and really deliver mm. something. So, of course, poets are naturally going to gravitate toward that. And I think sometimes people put writing prompts up there and then they say, you know, you've got to the end of the day, use this hashtag mm. and bang something up and and that's fun to see as well you really get to test people's creativity and see how their brains work in, around a theme yeah and I think in terms of getting something done that pressure of like here's a thing just do it in a day is really yeah. useful which is why I tend to live my life always winging it basically <laughs> <laughs> just just going out there and saying right I don't know what the hell I'm doing but I'm just gonna throw myself in and hopefully I won't sink what an excellent philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I tried planning. I tried planning for so many years, Emily, and I just found it was useless. Mm. Most of the things I planned for did not happen. Now, suddenly, I'm just reacting and responding to life day by day, and I'm getting more done. <laughs> so my dad has a phrase where he says that a definition of a plan is a thing that changes, and it's yeah. really quite useful <laughs> to remember. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. 